This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Chris Bates is the founder of Wealthful, a financial planning and property advice business based in Sydney. Chris specialises in helping families get control of their finances and invest in property the right way. Chris regularly shares his candid views on financial advice, property and personal finance via LinkedIn, a podcast and other social channels. Chris and I talk about his unusual and surprisingly short introduction to financial advice, creating social capital, how to identify investment grade property and the future of financial advice. Chris, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Good to talk. Yeah, wonderful. I hear that you're a Liverpool fan. Massive Liverpool fan. I can I can tell people that now. Um, I mean, twenty seven years supporting them. I think we've really won two or three things, but um, very happy at the moment. Mm. What was it? Just a few days ago, um, Liverpool won the Champions League. Yes. Yeah. Tottenham were robbed. Yeah. Oh no. No. I think well, I. <laughs> it's funny. I try to stay unbiased watching football. I don't want to be one of those fans that are just. You know, it's a penalty when you when you win the when it should be for you, and mm. when it's not you, you say it's not a penalty. I don't want to be one of those fans, but I kind of feel like it wasn't a penalty, so I'm a little <laughs> bit conflicted with the result. But anyway, I'm so happy. Yeah, uh, congratulations, mate. Thank you. That, to support for that long. I mean, I'm a Chelsea fan, so okay. it hasn't been quite as long between drinks for me. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, well done. It was a good game, nonetheless. Yep. You should be the new manager. Well, well, why not? They go through them quick enough and they get paid enough. <laughs> I'll put my hand up. Um, all right, mate. You probably know the basic outline of the show. It's We focus on your journey, the business you've built, and then we get into, some, get into some more topical things or areas of interest for you and for our listeners to take away and probably put into action. Mm-hmm. So why don't we kick things off with just tell us who you are, tell us where you grew up. Uh, one of the things that I like to, to know and podcasts are all about storytelling so mm-hmm. if you have any stories from when you were younger and I, I guess where that catalyst for finance came from okay I mean probably on the tin um, 32 live in Sydney um, just got married Congratulations. Uh, I know very exciting um, I mean I grew up in Newcastle mainly so I was 18 and then going to kind of school there um, was kind of good at numbers didn't really mm-hmm. connect with school too much um, just thought I should become an accountant. Was quite good at accounting. Joined an accounting practice. Did that for a year. Realised I could see what the guys like five, six years ahead of me were doing. It was basically the same thing, but just mm. bigger clients potentially. So didn't excite me. Um, then moved to Sydney. Wanted to see the world a bit. Um, and then I thought, well, I started investing at that point. I was actually buying some funds. I was doing some shares. Right. I'd done a few things and thought, well, maybe funds management is kind of the next route. So joined Platinum in their kind of funds administrations right at the bottom, you know, getting the mail, um, getting the beers for Friday. And uh, it was great because I guess, I guess I could real insight into the the investment world and still got some friends kind of there as well. 
Um, but I could see the life that the guys 10 years older were living, you know, stupid 14 hour days, ridiculously stressed. Um, and so moved to, went to the UK on holidays, met a financial advisor. Um, and then I kind of joined the dots and said, well, I actually love helping people. I've always been inquisitive of people and their story and getting to know someone. And, um, yeah, I've just always been curious with that and I could kind of help people could be good with money. And then, so I thought, well, I'll become a financial advisor. Mm. How did you how did you go from being in Australia to going to the UK and being advisor? Did you have to do any courses or anything like that? Yeah, so I went to the UK on a holiday. It was actually my grandparents, my grandmother's sixty fifth birthday. We went for, um, and she introduced me to one of her friends who was a financial advisor. Right. And then I thought, well, actually, that's the result. That's what that's what I'm looking for. Went back to Australia and then saved some cash up and then moved to the UK. Mm. Um, it's pretty scary what I had to do to become an advisor. It was literally. Uh, it was five weeks. They took us to a you know a pretty awful part of the UK, a place mm. called Milton Keynes, and um, we just sat in a room and we just got learned how to we got told how to sell. Right. Um, and it was pretty. We didn't know it was people not in financial advice and lots of different industries. And um, yeah, we just got sold how to basically taught how to sell products. And then you know literally two months later, I was out in branches selling products. Mm. And it's just not on. It wasn't right. Um, but that's kind of the training that I got. Mm. And the barriers to entry were just so low. I literally did an education course and I was advising a few months later. Right. And has it? do you keep up with it? Has it changed since yeah. then? Yeah. Because I feel like in more in recent times, they've been pretty, the regulator over there has been pretty ferocious in terms of clamping down on standards and introducing regulation, especially in the fallout of the GFC. Yeah. So the UK took a, uh, the GFC happened exactly. And then in 2011, I was... You know, you know, I came back to Australia, but in 2010, they said, look, enough's enough. We've got to fix up the financial advice industry. We've got too many problems. Mm. Um, a lot of it in the banking system, but also in the independent side. And they just lifted the education standards like they are here, um, not to a degree level, but to a pretty solid diploma level, which is mm. much higher than probably the diploma level here. And that cut the advisor. I'm pretty sure over 50% of advisors left. Wow. Um, and it was it was a, a year of solid work. So that, that really worked. And the UK didn't stuff around with it, unlike Brexit, where they're you know, taking five years <laughs> to get it done. They just actually said this 31st of December, you're either in or you're out. And um, that was basically halved the financial advisors out mm-hmm. there, which was an amazing move. So they've let's just wind back the clock a bit. So around the time of the GFC, it's probably a formative time for many young advisors over there. What were you saying in terms of clients? Was it was it an easy time in your career, or was it, you know, were you, were you seeing the worst of the worst? Um, I didn't know any better. So I literally my first was the last week of our training course. I remember it very clearly um, because there was this one chat because Northern Rock there was a run on Northern mm-hmm. Rock, and we were just about to go out advising late two thousand and seven, and one of the guys in the uh, course was like, "I'm going to buy Northern Rock shares." <laughs> he's already thinking he's a financial advisor, and he's you know, telling people what he's doing. Um, and um, Northern Rock went, went under, yeah. you know, and um, that was the start of the GFC. And um, yeah, I guess I just didn't really know any better. I was just out there and I was a young, kind of positive, kind of energized person. And I just didn't really know. And that's the problem with, with advising without very little experience and knowledge and helping people. Um, you just don't know what you don't know. Mm. And that was, yeah, not, not great, to be honest. The problem is I only had three products in my tool bag. What were they? It was two structured products and a risk-based product. Um, the structured products had like a guaranteed sort of three and a half or five and a half year time frame where you couldn't lose money. 
you could just get your capital back in five and a half years, which is technically losing money because of inflation. But um, the returns would give you 50% of whatever the FTSE went up over that period. All right. And because we're in a de-risk or the collapsing market, you know, they were quite easy for people to think, oh, I'm only getting 2% on cash. Rates have gone to zero. Um, I might as well put it into something like this for the next five years. At least it's guaranteed. Mm. Um, but they're awful products. Did they work out? Um, so this 2007, 2012, like the FTSE did go up for some, but, you know, they may have made 20% over five years instead mm. of making, you know, 15% or something like that, or maybe even making 6% or something. So they they didn't lose money. Mm. I was probably, you know, tell you the story in detail. Um, when 2009 happened and the market had, properly crashed in March 2009 that was mm. the the bottom so we're near, over 10 years now into the bull run which is just crazy um I was actually probably the one of the advisors out of the whole country that was selling the most of and it was selling and that's unfortunately the case a risk-based product which was um you know it goes up with the market and down with the market like a traditional fund yep um and I was the one in the country selling the most at the when the market was at the bottom because it's just, and that showed to me the whole country was kind of mis-selling this safe product, guarantee product, when they should have been advising clients to take a bit of risk at that point in time because this is when the market had crashed. So it and was, did that work out all right, that product? Yeah, that, that would have been great. It had high high percentage fees, like as a, assets under management fee. Yep. But I didn't know any better at that point because I was, you know, 18 months into financial advice world. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, those products wouldn't be, competitive today because you're looking, talking about 2% MERs where, you know, you're lucky to get over 1% now for yeah. funds, especially when you've got index funds that, you know, where they're as an option now. Yeah. So let's also just talk about your personal life here. Did you go over to London because not just for the from a professional point of view, you wanted that career change, I guess, but was it a chance for you to just experience the world? Yes, I was only 20. Um, and I might even just be 19 when I first actually know I was March there, so I was twenty. Um, yeah, and I mean, I just wanted to see the world, mm. travel, um, grow up. You know, I made lots of you know my best closest friends, and that's what the benefit of traveling is. You know, a lot of friends I met were a lot older than me, um, and so you, you learn a lot and you see the world. And after four years, though, it is a pretty tough life over there. You know, just weather wise, and um, you know, being away from family and things like that, it just got a bit too much, and thought like this, come back home to Australia. And you moved back to Melbourne first? Yeah, moved to Melbourne. Um, I think what happens when you go away, you don't want to go back to where you're from. Yeah. And so I moved to Melbourne, lived down here for two years, but then I was going up to Sydney a lot and kind of fell in love with Sydney again. Mm. I was going up and seeing my sister there and, um, yeah, moved back to Sydney in 2013. Yeah, great. And you obviously continued on as a planner. And was 2013 when you were a nominee for the Planner of the Year? Yeah, I mean, you can get nominated for these awards. But, um, yeah, that was an AFR, AFA sort of award mm-hmm. um, that I got nominated for, which was cool. Yeah, great. Um, yeah. And then 2014 is when you decided to launch your own business, right? Yeah. Wealthful. Why did you want to launch your own business in the first place? Um, I mean, technically, I was always going to do it. Like, I, you know, I think I'd always wanted to do it my way. I've always kind of had that philosophy um you know i think a lot of gem wise millennials do have it mm-hmm. that way um and uh yeah i guess I, I had lots of frustration with the industry and where it was going i thought well, if i i have no excuses when you do it your way you've, you know you're accountable 
uh, and you can't really blame anything else or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I always wanted to do do it my way and that's and by doing that was starting my own business. Yeah. I didn't like, you know, a lot of the learnings in life, I didn't know what I didn't know and I was probably a bit overconfident, mm-hmm. um, thought things would happen overnight. Um, but there's so many things that come into building a, a, a solid business that um, you only know once you get out and about and you probably need that naivety i guess i had the same experience i thought you know day one we're going to do this and two years later i'm still trying to get to that day one yeah that i had in my mind i think it's just a natural you know you, you have to be a little bit screws loose and just go for it because um unfortunately few businesses just r- race out of the gates right mm. so why don't you tell us more about wealth for anyway um so basically you know my passion's around helping kind of younger families you know 30s 40s um, you know, the dynamic of helping a couple really plan their life out, make big decisions. It's usually their first financial advice experience as well. Um, it's just a really positive experience taking someone's views and ideas and there's so much growth and so much runway mm-hmm. um, and any, anything's possible. Whereas I feel like with a lot of older clients, you know, there's, a, there's an end date. We're trying to get to here in five, six, ten years' time. Um, and it's all about dialing down. And the conversation, I think, you know, to me, was a bit boring. But with younger clients, it's just just getting to know them. A lot of it does come with mapping. Their biggest problem is property, without doubt. It's getting a home. It's renovating that home or, or doing a you know construction to build mm. that out. Getting something they're happy with and they can grow into as a family. It's really challenging in, in Sydney mm. and not as much in Melbourne, but also in Melbourne. Um, but once they've got that sorted, it's then making sure they're on top of their debt. Um, and we, so we make sure that we've got a plan in place and we're not over leveraging them. Um, and then we're just really challenging them on everything that comes around their life, you know, whether it's work or, you know, asking them big questions around kids and purpose and, mm. and just really trying to get them to align their life and their money to in the right direction, really. Mm. So, it's a bit more forgiving for you too as an advisor, I imagine, because you do have that growth r- runway. Typically, we're targeting retirement and, a, a, you know, a certain sum when we get there. But you can make small changes now that can compound over a lifetime, right? That's the big picture. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's why I love to help first-time buyers. Um, the, when they, you know, if they do come to me at that stage, um, you know, there's, you know, spending you know, multiple meetings with them and helping them, and really making sure they get it right. And I'm a little bit OTT on it. Um, <laughs> that because I know that that's the most important one. If they do make that decision right. When they come back in five or seven years' time, they'll end up they'll be in a much better position than if they didn't. Mm. And then that means that they can make the next decision and it, it all does compound. Mm. But if they do stuff up that first one, they go buy, you know, a poor investment property or they buy, you know, an off-the-plan apartment or they buy just something that's not great, they basically miss a huge opportunity and, um, yeah. Mm. We'll get to some of the, maybe the strategies or some of the pitfalls that people find themselves in. Uh, I, I read on your LinkedIn uh, a post that you wrote a little while ago and you, and you said, and I'll quote it, it's, it's something to the effect of um, not, not only do you coach people to make smart financial decisions, you coach them to make good life decisions. Mm. And for me, those two are kind of inextricably linked, if you like, because you tend to see with people that if they have good life habits, they tend to have good money habits. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm keen to know how you go about rewiring them. And what, what are some of the strategies you put in place, particularly if I'm, I'm imagining a couple, you know, there might be some dynamics around money or some perceptions around that. How do you deal with those types of situations? And what are the, I suppose, 
Pardon me, some of the common strategies you use. Um, so we always, so the first conversation we always have is on a phone call. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, I'll just kind of tell them a bit more about what we do and then we go straight into asking questions about who they are, tell me more about themselves. And what I'm really wanting to know is what's motivating them, where they're from. So like where you asked me you're from, you know, did you grow up in Sydney? Yeah, we grew up there. Where's your partner from? Or well, they're from mm. the UK and well, how long have you guys been together? Or oh, four years, you know. I want to know about their life and also what they're thinking about doing, where they're thinking about going, you know. Well, do you guys think you're going to stay in Sydney? What do you do for work? You know, do you think you should ever see yourself living overseas? Um, we're trying to figure out where they want to go with their life. And so, and if they don't know that, then we're, more, we're, much, we're best trying to figure that out mm-hmm. and really make some decisions on that because most people don't want to think about where their life potentially could be. Mm-hmm. Once we figure that out, and sometimes it's very hazy, you know, like especially if one partner's from Australia, one partner's overseas, they may want to live overseas or they may want to swap jobs or start a business. Let's just talk about all these sort of things and get them all out in the open. And then we can start to build what to do around that. Because if there is a need to say live in or a desire to live in Sydney long term and it's a desire to have a family, you know, what are you going to do to solve that problem? Because that problem probably won't go away. Mm. And if you want to stay in a house and live in an area, we need to come up with a strategy to solve that problem first because if whatever we do today may compromise that and you need to be aware of that or maybe you should just try to plan towards that now. So that is one strategy that lots of clients will do is even if they're not ready to get into that future family home today, we will look to make that as their investment rather than buying other stuff. Yeah. Okay, so it's mainly about getting that, knowing where you want to be settled in particular, which is a big thing, right? Yeah. Um, you've also mentioned this idea of, of true wealth before. Mm. And I think there's a, maybe even a video on your site, which yeah. is really good. And you also mentioned it, this phrase, fulfilled life. Can mm. you explain what they mean? Because we, also, we always talk about, and we always hear people talk about financial independence and financial freedom, but it's kind of this, it's very subjective and you it's really hard to define. So what in your mind is that? Yeah, so I think it means different things to different people. I think it's never, there's so much research out there that money's not going to make you happy. It's only the money that enables something. Mm-hmm. And so usually it's giving you time or, you know, your relationships or health and things like that. So for me, true wealth, all those elements, you know, like um, there's no point having lots of money if you got no time and you've got, no relationships that you really care about or your health's really deteriorating or you don't really connect with where you live and the community. I think that a lot of people don't feel like they're not wealthy until they've got that, but really they should be putting value on what they currently have today because they are already wealthy. So that's my view on it is money's not the end game. You should really be valuing what you have today and focusing on these things and only using money to enable and enhance the experiences. So, you know, it's important to have money. Maybe, you know, traveling is a huge part of, you know, building relationships and experiences and, mm. but also money. Like there's no point going and pursuing money for the sake of money if it's not giving you any purpose or any satisfaction or, mm. you know, you just got to burn out. So me, True Wealth, is really valuing things that are not just money mm. and putting it, putting a tangible and in using money to grow those things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think mm. the older I've gotten, I'm still quite young, so I'm yet to see what will happen in the next 10 years, but mm. the older I've gotten, the more I begin 
being able to value relationships and just mm. the, the freedom that comes with, I suppose, you know, having enough money to be comfortable. And I think that's my definition of freedom is having control of my time and being able to develop those relationships. Mm. I'd like to, because a lot of what you do and a lot of the what you've alluded to so far is gearing towards property. And I don't mean gearing, no pun intended, but <laughs> uh, I'm interested to know what you think are some of the common mistakes that, let's go with the 30 to 40 year old typical yep. average Australian client that you would see. What are some of the behavioral mistakes or financial mistakes that they fall into? You mentioned buying off the plan as one of them. I think that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of a no-no in my book. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm keen to know if you, have, if, if you have any others in your mind. Oh, yeah. So off the plan, definitely not. And we've only seen that in the last week with a couple of building quality risks come out with a few towers. But yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big one. I mean, I think a lot of the, you go into, I was just in the bookshop today at the airport and, um, you know, there's all these books on, how to build money so fast and grow money. It's always about quantity and big numbers and mm. number of properties. That's another huge mistake. Um, you know, people are going by four or five investment properties and they're all cheap, cheerful assets. Um, you know, I think over leveraging like into their homes, a big thing. It's very, um, it's a lot of people, I've seen a lot of clients that have gone into too much debt on their home and they've hamstrung themselves. Mm-hmm. So they want to live a good life. So they want to spend a lot of money each month. Um, so it's a good life, but they want to, they do have a life that spends a lot of money and they can't afford to pay off the mortgage basically. Mm-hmm. So the mortgage just kind of goes flat lines. Um, it's just extremely stressful. Are there any rules of thumb that you would use in that situation? Like I've heard some planners will say, keep your mortgage repayments less than 30% yeah. of your income. Yeah. I look at it um, differently. I probably, I built my own little calculator that basically I, I don't, whatever the minimum repayment is, I told them, forget that. That's what the bank wants you to pay. You don't want to pay that. You want to pay more than that. And then we do a bit of a calculation to basically say, well, how much, how, how much would you have to pay to pay this off over 15 years? Mm. But allowing for kind of salary increases, allowing for interest rates to potentially go up and down and a few other things. So that just gives them a, and it's usually, oh, a good 40, 50% above what the minimum bank repayment is. Right. And so they go, wow, I actually thought it was only six grand a month. Well, I should be paying eight and a half. Um, mm. And I have to up that next year to nine to, you know, and it has to go up. So mm. I guess that's how I try to retrain them is on a much higher figure than what they will actually have to pay and then try to commit to that every month. Mm. What, how about, because, you know, I'm my, my role is primarily involved in share markets and managed funds and funds management. Yeah. When, it, when I look over the fence and I, 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 I read property investing books or I go to seminars or those types of things, you know, I, I can't help but think that it's kind of like it gets a bit murky in certain respects. Do you ever have clients come in that have had pretty bad outcomes when it comes to relying on information or relying on people who, you, who they thought were trustworthy? And what I mean is, you know, getting set up in structures or buying off the plan or those types of things. Yep. Are there any pitfalls that people fall in, fall into i'm thinking it's it's very easy to have that confirmation bias like you get this idea in your head and then you go ahead and you want to do whatever strategy gets you rich as quick as possible and they're promising you things do you there, do you come across that very often all the time so because yeah. as you say i'm in property not excuse me not focused but you know there is a big property element to what we do now a lot of that comes around the lifestyle getting their home mm. and then helping them renovate it things like that but then also because there's only so much equity they've got in that home, 
because they're on good incomes, that equity they can use to leverage using their borrowing capacity mm-hmm. and then go and buy an investment. So instead of buying 100 grand worth of shares or 200 grand worth of shares, maybe then going and getting a margin loan, mm-hmm. which may or may not be a good decision depending yeah. on where markets are and the cost and you know there's a margin calls, et cetera. Maybe it's better to use that you know 200 grand of equity and then borrow another 800 and buy one really top quality investment property. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how, and then hold that for, you know, and I, I, my advice is never to sell it, you know, because if you've got a good asset, why would you ever sell it? So you just keep it, mm-hmm. you know, in 10 years time, is it a good asset? Yes. Okay. Is it better than it was? Yes. Okay. So then why would you sell it and wait another 10 years? It's still a good asset. Still, you know what I mean? So that's kind of the philosophy. But a lot of the philosophies I see that are big mistakes is people have gone and, um, They'll go to some investment property guru. It could be off the plan. It could be, you know, cheap rural kind of properties like 40Ks from Brisbane CBD mm-hmm. and they'll go and buy four of them. Yeah. Um, or it's, you know, there's typical ones out there that are buying properties fifty dollars to $100,000, which is pretty scary and you've got 70 properties and, wow. you know, there's those type of people, which I don't think is a good idea. Um, there's people who spruik, you know, new kind of duplexes in regional double income, um, granny flat properties. There really is lots of ways to do it. The reality Mm. is good property investing is getting scarce assets and there's actually only usually a handful of them on the market at at each time. I've got a client trying to buy in Melbourne at the moment. She's been looking for four months for a a quality asset and we can't find one. And that's with choppy markets. And that's, well, yeah, and there's, and it should be easier, exactly, yeah. but there's no no good stock on the market right now. And she's got a buyer's agent hmm. who gets paid if she buys something, but we just can't find something. And she missed out at two properties. So getting good assets is really hard. It shouldn't be easy. Um, and to get it for a good price, <clears throat> because the reason she hasn't got something is she's missed out on two properties that have <clears throat> overshot at auction. Right. Okay. That's surprising. So, you know, and that's why, then that's how that's really the, the, how much that's that's where good in property investing gets to is actually getting those really scarce price properties at, at good prices i was going to ask you this question a little later on but we often hear and i as i listen to property podcasts once again i hear others talk about it that property investors talk about this idea of an investment grade property and you know we don't really have that in, in the share market there's no one that says this is investment grade that's not you can go into bond markets and you can find that but in your mind, what makes an investment grade property versus one that's not? Yeah, so Stuart Weems talks about investment grade a lot. He's a he's a gun planner down in Melbourne, and mm-hmm. um, he gets property. Um, really, it, it comes down to the just just two fundamentals. You've got demand, and you've got supply. And so, really, if we think about supply first, it's really easy to think about that. Can they build more of it? Um, and is it truly scarce? Is it you know and so if you're thinking about a house and land package in the suburbs, can they build more of them? Yes. Can you think about a new high rise? Can they build more of them? Yes. So they're just fundamentally, they're flawed because there's just more supply that can be built. New townhouses, they can build more of them. So you need to get something where there's actually capped supply. Mm-hmm. So if you think about houses in the in a 5K ring of a city, can they build more houses? No. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be less houses in 10 years' time? Yes, because they're going to knock their houses down to build apartments to build townhouses, to build shopping centers and freeway or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there'll be less houses, there's no land left. So from a supply point of view, it's good. And is that supply highly desirable for on the demand side to people that wanna live in it, not to buy it to invest in, do they wanna live in it and raise a family? 
and do two double income kind of families want it? Because okay. they're the ones who've got the borrowing capacity and the cash to go and borrow the money or they're willing to put their money into it. Mm. And so what you're trying to do is, is, is find property that is A, really scarce and in suburbs where they're not going to change because the livability, what makes the suburb desirable today to live in for families, you want that to be the same in 10 years' time. Mm. So you want to buy in areas that have got lots of heritage overlays, parks, beautiful streets, um, because if you come back in 10 years' time or 20 years' time or 30 years' time, those will probably stay the same. Mm-hmm. The CBD is only going to keep growing with the population. And so then the, that from a life, a living point of view should stay the same. And so then as a percentage, you know, if you come back in 20, 30 years' time, the percentage of the population that could afford that property will be, or well, the number will be much bigger mm-hmm. and they'll just start competing for these assets. The problem is you, you don't want to buy, you, you know, if you think about Melbourne, all the eastern suburbs around the bay, it's just too expensive, mm. you know. And so where you would potentially look in Melbourne is maybe the upper north and the inner west because it's still affordable to kind of first-home buyers. Um, and so if you're going to buy an investment grade, you'd probably go there because the yield wouldn't be too bad compared to, say, the east and the bay side. How about in Sydney? Uh, similar, you can do it in the inner west. The eastern suburbs is, is like one five plus. Yeah. But in the inner west in places, you know, around... You know, the Bowmains, the Annandales, the Glebe, Stanmore, Petersham, Newtown, all these suburbs, you know, you can buy little houses that families would love to live in, you know, in the low ones, which is which is pretty cool. Okay. That's kind of the reality. It's scary though, isn't it? It's uh, for first-home buyers. It's uh, to think about a million dollars on a first home. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, I think we're looking for that double income, both working on two solid incomes that both probably work in the city. Um, are both on you know reasonable money mm. you know the problem is people are taking million dollar mortgages out 45 cases from the city in, in Sydney mm. and you know and they're pushing themselves to the nth degree um, and you know they're borrowed right up to their maximum they've got a loan at 95% and they've bought a housing estate mm. that to me is a lot riskier yeah for, for sure okay uh, we've talked about uh, probably some of the mistakes or pitfalls that people fall into if you can imagine, say, tomorrow someone walks into your office and they're this typical couple, let's say a 35, couple of kids, mortgage, car loans, etc. Your advice to them, I guess, would be target properties in this fringe, so it's five kilometre fringe around the city. But are there any sort of, I know this is very broad strokes here, but are there things that you deal with every single day or whenever you meet with a client that you think, all right, I just wish everyone would know this before they got to me. So things like, you know, pay down debts or anything yeah. like that. So you mentioned car loans. I'm not really a fan of having car loans, you know, unless it's a work or it's you driving it a lot and, you know, you get a value out of a nice car sort of thing. But, mm. you know, even then I would probably... So things like that, you know, sh- you know, obviously, you know, unsecured kind of short-term credit, credit cards, not a fan of those. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you know, obvious reasons. Um, you know, I would still do all the... You know, get the clients to talk about all your foundations about having a cash flow system to make sure that you manage money on a, you know, have a system that works. Um, you know, do your super, do your insurance, you know, all those foundation things. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you've got all those done, um, you know, only own good top quality properties, you know, like don't own a, you know, two bedroom unit in Toowoomba or something like that just because you bought it when you're 25 and you still got it and start nothing in 10 years just get rid of it you know and, yep. um, if you're going to buy a home and you're going to take out a lot of debt make sure it's something you can grow into as a family you know um, so there's lots of 
you know, I guess there's things, but, you know, really good financial advice is actually really simple and it's actually good foundations. It's not ultra complex strategies that, you know, uh, stop picking, you know, mm. the next kind of growth story. Mm. I just don't think that's good advice. Mm. Okay, let's change gears a bit because I've, I've read some posts that you've had in the past about <laughs> uh, different apps or services and technology, the way that's changing the financial advice industry and talking yep. about keeping things simple. Uh, some of these apps, you know, saving, budgeting, investing, etc. Some of the things that you've, I've, I've noticed that you've written in the past, one of them, you know, that robo-advice is probably a big thing, but it's probably more of a commodity than mm-hmm. anything else. And, and the, the prices will come down and maybe even free one day to, be, yep. to engage a robo-advisor. Um, another one is that um, it may become free or automated at least to get financial health check. Yeah. And um, there's a couple more that you have, but I'll, 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 sp- I'll spare, I'll let you do the talking. Um, can you explain? Can you explain where you see the financial advice industry going? Because you're you're at the coalface, right? Uh, I think it's fragmented. It's going to split off dramatically because you're going to have the exit of bank planners, which I think is a really good thing. And uh, if you're a bank planner now, like sorry, the jobs are not going to be there. But for the future of Australia, I think it's good that institutions are not providing financial advice. I think it's just too conflicted, mm-hmm. and we need to cut that at some point. And so I think that's a good thing. And I do think that. Um, I think there'll be a high end, the half a percent, not even the one percenters, like the half a percent or 0.25 or 0.1% will go to uh, full service, well-structured financial advice groups that have the infrastructure to provide a gamut of services under one roof. But they'll have to be a bit smart and make sure that they don't do the wrong thing because those things will come unstuck as we've kind of seen recently as well. So. Mm those ultra ethical high net worth businesses will do really well because there will be a growing cohort that will seek experts and thought and value time and value knowledge and will pay for that advice Mm. but you'll need a proper infrastructure you can't just start a business tomorrow and try to compete there because there's already established players that'll do really well but i then think there's going to be this huge gap and i think that you know uh, a lot of um the time especially unless compliance dramatically goes a whole other flip and compliance becomes really easy uh, and time, like not very time consuming, um, it will be very hard to deliver advice to everyday Australians unless compliance costs come down dramatically and it becomes much automated and much easier. Um, so if that happens, then yeah, I think everyone, there'd be a role for advisors, but unless that happens, then I think a lot of advisors are gonna struggle. Yeah. And so, you know, there'll be not really profitable businesses, um, and then I do think there'll be online players that really take off. I don't think robo advice, I think everyone got scared about it, but really it's just an automated investment solution like an index fund that's, you know, they're not that complex. Mm. Um, and there have been commoditizers already there now, I think. Um, but those, those robos are now attaching advisors on that you can basically have for 30 basis points or 20 basis points and they can, you know, talk to you about things. And So kind of like a subscription if you like yeah i think vanguard do like personal advisor services and i think you know uh, better personal capital do i think betterment tried it i think stock spot here are going to do it you know i think that's that's the future of that kind of robo advice is yeah. cheap investment management which is almost free yep um with an advisor attached via a webinar or something like that, a web 
like kind of video sort of thing. Mm. But I don't, I don't think that's pretty boring. I think the next evolution of advice will be kind of AI sort of machine learning models that you can basically plug in your financial situation and it'll give you insights and say, look, you're spending this. You sh- have you thought about doing this with your money? And it'll be a lot of general advice using data to give you ideas. You know, you've got your super fund there, you're paying 2%. Why don't you put that into a low-cost fund? You know, you're paying 8 5% on your mortgage, you could be paying 3.5%. And would you want us to implement that? And then you'd say yes. And then they would spit out an automated advice document and help you manage that process through. So I think unless you are providing really value around the, the, the conversations in life, should we buy our first home? Should we move overseas? Should I take that job? Should I start a business? Should we have a family? These questions, if you're not expert in those type of questions and you're just selling products, the computer will do that. Yeah. How far do you think we are away from having a solution that can kind of be more holistic than fragmented, like you said, in the investing piece, for example? Uh, good question. I was way overconfident with this stuff. And I think, you know, there's always an overhype with technology. And then there hits this kind of, this dip. I think Gartner do a really good mm. graphic of that. And when new technology comes out, we think it's going to change the world. And then it kind of goes through this dip and then it comes back. I think we're in this dip where they're trying to figure it all out. So ask me two years ago, I would have said in two or three years time. Now I probably still think it's probably another five years away, you know, mm. till we start to see this stuff. It's kind of an exciting thing for consumers, I guess, and particularly people that haven't had access to advisors in the past, whether that be because they simply just don't um, have a trust or whether they don't have the financial, they think they don't have the financial capacity to be able to just have a system that might say, read your bank statements and then just spit out some recommendations. I mean, that's pretty exciting for them. Pretty scary, if, like you said, if you're just pushing products on the other side of the table. Yeah, and I think like, you know, I think someone like Finder, for example, right? Hmm. You know, if they, if you, they've got access to all the products there, and so if you just gave them your data and said, tell me what I need to do, mm. and they had a, a machine chatbot that talked you through it and said, do X, Y, and Z, and it's going to save you Y, do you want us to do that for you? Press, yes. press your thumb here. Like it's, it's, I, I do think it's going to come. And so the only way to really stay in that world is to be the, you know, the trusted advisor that's good at answering those big questions because you can't put in there into that thing, should I have a family? Yep. It's too technical. It's too like, yeah. assumedly, you know, you know what I mean? There's just so much to it. I think, um, you know, while this is kind of a scary development or potentially disruptive for some advisors, it, it can also, like you said, if you are the right type of advisor, this is probably a really exciting time for you as well. And for you specifically, you've developed this a, a, a tremendous amount of social capital. What, uh, what we call social capital in the sense that you've got an online presence, people know who you are, um, your business, I, I'm keen to know how it affects your business, but let's just take a, an example. In On LinkedIn, for example, you have 21,000 people that follow you. That's that's incredible. I don't think of any, I, don't, I know of any finance professional in the country that has that amount of uh, following. Mm. Uh, and I'm, in, I'm interested to know how that level of social capital impacts your business. Is that... A, a genuine funnel for you yeah yep yeah. so we you know it definitely is and we get you know, i get people reaching out every day basically hmm. um but they don't all become clients you know we have a 15 20 minute phone call and you know and i've got a, a bit of a niche that we work with and 
you know, it's you know, unless they're at certain levels and certain points in their life, then we're not really the right fit. So, yep. yeah, it definitely is. I think social content. Um, if you're doing it for the following, or you're doing for that, then you're probably going to run out of steam. You know, you do it because you enjoy it. You do it because you it helps you you find it interesting, mm. etc. So when I started producing content, I did actually from a selfish, well, not selfish reason, there was a business, hopefully, outcome I could get from it. And it was growing, you know, I thought it was a way of growing the business. But why would I do it every single day? Was because I enjoyed it. Yeah. And so I enjoyed writing posts. I enjoyed. And so, um, yeah, that's, so I think there's a, it's it's great. I'm getting these things, but I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't enjoy it. Mm. And so that's, that's the fun of it all. Um, you don't know where the opportunity is going to come from. The thing about content is you don't know who's following. So you, you, unless you're doing a tracking, you're doing an email newsletter and stuff like that, which I'm not, but if you, and you can see who's opening it and things like that on LinkedIn, I don't know who those 20,000 people are and I don't even know if they're reading it. And so it's, that's when you get a call and they're like, I've been reading your stuff for three, four years. Mm. Uh, I really love it. And then they start using your lingo and terminology <laughs> and you're like, okay, you have been reading it. Um, and so that's, that's the, that's nice. Like, I guess it's, uh, and so you're helping people and you don't, that's what I love about it is you help people on scale, you know, hopefully make better decisions um, without having to see all those people because mm-hmm. that's the problem with advice. Like, what, I could help 10 new clients a month probably. Mm-hmm. We start capping out, you know, to, you know, it's probably a bit more, but, you know, it's, it's not, I can't help 100. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of the problem with face-to-face advice. It's just not scalable. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing because I – particularly now with these prominent social networks, we have a lot of people in an industry that would like to be in the position that you're in in terms of how big you've got your following. Mm-hmm. But most of them kind of don't really have a plan or a way to, to tackle it and they, they dip their toe in the water and they don't get an ROI from it immediately. You, yep. just, you just mentioned four or five years. Did you... Like, did you have a plan or did you just think, let's just, I'm just enjoying this and if people like it, they like it and that's good enough? So I, I remember when I started because, you know, business been going for six months and I started reading about content marketing and so I started writing blogs and I was at school and I was never told that I could write very well, right? Mm-hmm. So it was always numbers. I did like standard English. I didn't do advanced English. I was, you know, I was never, English wasn't really my thing. So, but I thought, well, I can write and I just started writing um, and I probably look back on those blogs now, they're probably not well written, you know what I mean? But I wrote really long form blogs and they didn't really get much traction. And um, I thought, well, that's it. I'm not going to try that anymore because I spent four, five, six hours doing this well-researched piece. Mm. Um, I, in saying that though, a few of them were a bit controversial and I always a bit of a strategy that I did have a bit, a few things I wanted to get out about the industry that were upsetting me. And so that was probably a negative kind of phase I, I started the business with a bit of haste and a bit of i can do it better than that and this is you know it's not right what everyone else is doing mm. um i don't really care about any of that anymore i don't like, focus my energy there but that was kind of a shift i went from long form to short form and just right well I'll just do these short snippets mm. and then that was i've just said well if you're going to do it you got to stay consistent and just did it daily and over time it just grows you know mm. if you stay consistent and people keep one reading i guess mm. I'll put a link in the show notes to those short snippets you do, but I think they're great. Some of the graphics are just kind of like drawn on a piece of paper with a texture sometimes. Just, yeah. It's just, it just makes so much sense. All that encapsul- all that information encapsulated in one little paragraph and an image. Um, okay, so that's 
like I think that that places you better for someone compared to someone who say doesn't hasn't invested in the social capital. They really they might have a website, but they don't really put themselves out there. But then again, like you say, it might not be for everyone. For example, those that aren't passionate about it. Mm. Um, you've since started a podcast, is that right? Mm. Yeah. Um, what are some of the other things that you would say maybe are low hanging fruit for advisors, or do, would you have any tips for them? Um, so why I like about the content side is that it's free basically mm-hmm. and I haven't got out and go out there and kind of, you know, talk to accountants or lawyers and say refer to me and things like that. The interesting thing is after doing the content they now do because they read it and then they were like, well, I trust you mm. and I've, you've stayed consistent and you've stayed authentic and you haven't changed your tune. One minute you're not recommending this and now you're recommending this. So after a while people, you build that trusted kind of credibility and people refer to you so you know it's one of the ways to to build referral partners is actually become a bit you know create that content mm. from a low-hanging fruit i think the podcast it's been going for over a year now um we got some really good advice early on that if we were going to do it that to do it properly and get really good sound get really clear on your messaging and what you're trying to achieve and then go out and get it produced you know professionally professionally basically um and that was really good advice and so that's what we tried to do and it's it's kind of working the good thing about podcast is it's what we're doing now is sound if you listen to someone's voice i didn't know this um and you do that multiple times so multiple hours i think you build a lot of trust with people for sure and much more than kind of writing i think and so when clients come to me off the podcast like they've they're even completely different to off linkedin or something like that they're like really thought about things deeply and you know i think from a client point of view it's 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 great you know we end up working together really fast and Mm. and things like that um i don't know i think videos untapped i haven't really seen anyone do it that well Mm. um i do think that there's an even bigger element of trust factor if you're authentic on camera and you you know and you produce things that aren't I don't know. I don't really like the whole car, the car, the walking and talk, you know, the, mm. you know, the off cuff. I think if it's good content that's produced well, I do think there'll be a huge gap for someone to, to do that. Mm. You can see someone like Kenna Campbell on YouTube. She's a prime example. Um, she's got over 100,000 YouTube followers. She's a financial advisor um, off video on YouTube. Mm. And so she's a, you know, she's got her market, you know. You know, women and finance, sort of, and so she, you know, that's a huge tap. You know, a lot of planners wouldn't even know that exists, but she's mm. got hot books out of it and everything like that. Mm. Um, you only have, and you can produce books as well. I mean, you have to look at the success of Scott Pape. There, there will be another Scott Pape at mm. some point that you know does just as well. Um, you know, at some point. Mm. Yeah, I think there's tremendous opportunity, and you mentioned video. We talked off air about this a little bit, but this transition away from free to air television. I don't, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that that's dying. And, prob- you know, you can put me on record for the next five years that almost everything that you consume will be online. And I think no matter what industry you're in, the takeaway here is that if you are prepared to invest and build that social capital and you get the right infrastructure in place, there's a tremendous opportunity. You just, you just mentioned a few examples of people mm. that I haven't heard of. Um, I, I, and I think that's a way to not necessarily future-proof yourself or your business, but it's definitely... It's table stakes if you want to build a, a great business um, providing advice in any 
capacity, I guess. It doesn't matter if you're in this industry in design or whatever industry you're in. Mm. So I think that's great. And I think what your success to date is um, testament to that strategy and just putting yourself out there and giving it a go. Um, as we come to the end of the conversation, I think given your focus on property, on, you know, as you said, it's not your sole focus, but your interest in property, it might be remiss of me not to ask how you feel about property in the near term or perhaps in the medium term, this kind of outlook. I don't really like to do these on this show, but mm. um, what I'm also keen to understand is how do you sort the noise from what's actually important to your clients and to yourself? So I was extremely, last year was really hard to provide advice. Um, this is in 2018. Yep. Yeah, so basically, you know, all the issues around the election um, and then even this year with the election as well, yep. just because that's, the, the direction for the Australia's biggest asset could have taken a big uh, turn to the different direction. And we've seen that since the election, you know, a lot of confidence has come back into the market and things like that. So, you know, that wasn't noise. That was actually fundamentally something that would change the psyche to the Australian property investor if negative gearing went. Yep. So you do have to, but, you know, things that aren't that important or what's happening with interest rates and things like that, I don't think small little, you know, what's going to happen next month or, you know, there's so much, you're right, there is so much noise. I guess the reality is if you're only buying a few assets, really what doesn't matter to the Australian property market doesn't matter. What's happening to your micro market, to your house in your suburb is really what matters. And if they're not building any more of them, and as long as the Australian population keeps growing and our economy keeps growing over the next, say, 30, 40 years... Uh, and it's a scarce asset that suits kind of families. Like, unless we completely change the way that we live and we move to country and mm. things like that, um, you'd like to think that's going to be a good, it's going to be a desirable thing for people to live in in 30, 40 years' time. Mm. So you don't really have to worry about it too much um, because you just buy good assets and you hold them for a long time. Mm. Uh, and it sounds pretty simple, but... To me, I think that's the best strategy you can go with. You don't have to kind of time markets or try to pick where the next growth hotspot is. Those things can potentially work, but you know you end up having to put that capital somewhere else, and the good asset might have gone up just as much, you know. Mm. And so a lot of that kind of flipping and all that sort of stuff they can work, but a lot of the time they don't. Mm. I like this simple buy and hold, high quality. It's very much the way I approach my other in my investing in in the share market mm. um, and I imagine with that uh, you would be sometimes you have to pay up for those properties right yeah so these aren't you know you, you don't go and buy you know in Brighton or Camberwell a house there you know three million dollars or something like that but you know you could buy something in Northcote for low low million dollars you know or Brunswick or Yarraville or mm. Kensington you know so these are all like four or five location in the city you know, scarce, highly desirable places for young families. And they're not too expensive right now. Mm. You know, first-home buyers on double incomes can get there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the upgraded market definitely isn't there yet. But the upgraded market will at some point get there, you know, because they won't be able to buy in the east or the bayside and they'll all want to kind of get close to the city because they've got kids and Brunswick, Northcote will be where they all want to move to, you know. And so those suburbs, you know, when at some point will be when all that cash from other suburbs kind of gets invested and you know those suburbs gentrify over time and they become more suitable to families and things like that so i mean that's kind of the the philosophy behind it is that 
you know, you buy something also that always suits the family market. Don't buy a kind of a two-bed house that will never suit the family market um, because that's the family. That, that market's got the biggest emotional pull and that will go and spend $4 million on a house or $3 million on a house. Even if this doesn't make sense from an investment point of view, they go and spend that money because they have such a desire to live in it from a lifestyle point of view. Mm, that makes sense. Okay, as we come to the end of the conversation, how can our listeners find out more about you and your business and, and follow you? Yeah, um, you know, always happy for people to kind of engage and jump on LinkedIn and you know continue the conversation there. Podcast is um, obviously another thing. Is, the elephant you know, in the room? Yep, the elephant in the room property podcast. If you want to listen to that, that'd be amazing. Um, yep, that's that's good fun. So we just uh, let one out every week and that's uh, always interesting. Uh, and then there'll be other content things that will come out soon. So some, some things in the works, perhaps. Yeah. Great. Okay, final question from me, mate. Yeah. If you could go back and tell a younger you one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Um, pursue, find your passion and uh, live, live your life following your passions and what's going to make you happy and try to find that. Um, because there's no point pursuing anything else. Great advice. So live life on your terms and just follow that. Uh, and don't stress about the other stuff. It'll come. So if you follow your passion, you'll invest, you'll have energy, you'll work on your, your personal knowledge, your job opportunities will come, money will come. Don't worry about it. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, thanks for joining me on the show, mate. No worries. Good. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.